0: Healthcare is rapidly changing. Innovative technologies and new treatment paradigms are changing the way we tackle the world's pervasive health issues. I'm Alex Godan with Oxner Health in New Orleans, Louisiana. Join me as we go inside Louisiana's largest healthcare system where we discuss new ideas in confronting these healthcare challenges. We talk to thought leaders and healthcare experts to explore the latest innovations in patient care. Welcome to Innovation Health. Almost a year into the pandemic, the United States has surpassed a staggering 400,000 deaths as a result of COVID-19. As the new vaccines are rolled out, there will be a light at the end of the tunnel, but many cases will still occur before the country is able to get a hold of the virus. How has medical care changed since the start of the pandemic? Are we treating patients differently? What about all the home treatments we read about online? On today's episode of Innovation Health, we talk with Dr. Sandra Kimberly, a Senior Physician and Medical Director of Infectious Disease at Ochsner Health. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Kimberly. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you because at this point, we're about almost a year into the COVID-19 pandemic here in the United States, and um, I think many of us kind of look at you as someone who's really been all things COVID. Has that kind of been all-consuming for your life this past year? It has.
1: In fact, thanks for having me, and um, we started this journey planning for COVID last January. Wow. So we were aware of the reports coming out of China in December, and so our epidemic team actually kind of convened and became active in January of last year. So it's been now over you know, about a year. And so um, it has been all COVID all year long. And certainly we've seen the highs and the lows. And we're just very excited about the vaccines that are coming our way now
0: to to someone kind of on the outside here from a non-clinical perspective it really kind of just seems like a whirlwind of information and just so fast-paced and things changing all the time would you just say from your experience that this has been one of the you know fastest moving ever changing scenarios you've ever had to deal with absolutely i mean if reflecting back on what we knew in january at that point
1: regarding you know patients and treatment we really just didn't know and so um, A lot of the information that we, you know, were able to gather certainly came from credible sources like CDC and WHO and certainly, you know, the social media posts from other physicians, podcasts coming out of Italy um, and then Europe and England. And so the information was just, you couldn't go to a textbook and look up how to do these things. So it was really on the fly.
0: And it's so interesting the way you mentioned just that sheer moment of, we don't know what we're dealing with. We don't know the ins and outs of, of this illness, of this pandemic. And so when we look at something like a treatment and how that's kind of evolved over the past year of things we've learned, which we'll get into, I think that was probably one of the scariest things I have to imagine, you know, right there in that April surge. And it's like, we have these patients coming in, you know, how do we help them? Sure, And and as you know, medicine is
1: very deliberate. We're scientists. We plan things. We study things. We do randomized clinical trials with placebo-controlled subjects. And not having the ability to do that and look up results and then plan your course was a little bit scary, quite frankly. But again, our patients started coming to us in March. And so we're talking, our first patient was March 9th. And so um, we just had to move. And so you know, we knew how to take care of people with respiratory failure. Um, but we didn't know how necessarily to take care of people with COVID. We didn't understand the whole COVID syndrome. Mm-hmm. And and really what we are seeing now in retrospect were very advanced COVID cases. So we have a better understanding of the whole natural history of the disease, the different presentations. Um, in the variety of presentations. And keep in mind, 80 plus percent of people that get infected with COVID have very mild disease. They don't require hospitalizations. Of those who require hospitalization, that's the minority of the ones that go to the intensive care unit and some unfortunately pass away. That's really the tip of the iceberg and not the wide variety of patients that we're seeing now. And so the whole thing has changed. And I would say the way we would care for people with ventilatory failure requiring intubation um, back in March Mm -hmm. is very different what we're doing over the course of the year because conventional
0: ICU management did not happen to apply to COVID illness. Um, Looking at kind of the early treatments What was the first, I remember the buzzword of the first treatment or medicine we were hearing hydroxychloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, yes. So I feel like that was the buzzword we were all hearing around like the springtime. Hydroxychloroquine, what was, where did that come from? How did that start being the the thing everyone talked about? Yeah, it's, that's a very interesting um, tidbit of
1: information, right? So hydroxychloroquine has been a drug, it's a malaria type drug that's been around for Decades, it's used to treat rheumatologic disorders okay. such as lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, and there were some case reports coming out of China and out of Italy that perhaps um, that this medication would be beneficial in people that had um, COVID. The science wasn't there. All again, anecdotal, um, which. You know, at that point, it was something. And so...
0: People just latching on to any... At yeah, that point, because as a we clinician... That's all we had.
1: Yeah, and the clinicians, the patients, or families, when you say, well, you have this perhaps fatal disease and we have nothing to treat, people were grabbing at straws. And hydroxychloroquine, which was an FDA or which is an FDA-approved drug for certain indications, mm-hmm. the rheumatologic indications, had an emergency youth authorization for covid and so it gave it some validity but then again we did not have good scientific studies to support it ultimately it turned out that it wasn't quite the drug that it was being touted to be Mm -hmm. and in fact may have caused more harm than good in a number of patients uh, especially related to heart
0: and uh, kidney complications so wow so that's been completely phased out at this point completely So again, when we look at this evolution of the treatment we've seen over the past year, what does it look like at at its current state for a patient who is hospitalized for COVID-19? So I think it looks quite different than it did back in
1: March and April. Uh, March and April, the patients were critically ill. Most were in the intensive care unit. Very few were on the hospital floor. We went to ventilation and intubation earlier. Um, And what we've learned is that Ventilatory support, intubation, and a ventilator should really be a treatment of last resort. Okay, um, We've become very adept at giving very high flow, excessive amounts of oxygen um, to patients that don't require intubation. And that that's a paradigm shift. That's not something we did in conventional medicine. Um, but the COVID has taught us that really putting somebody on mechanical va- ventilation, you have to do it when you can no longer support them with oxygen that they can breathe in, either by um, mask or BiPAP or CPAP, that the, the ventilator is the last resort. But sometimes you have to use it if they can't just oxygenate people. And I think the other, and certainly the other things that have changed for hospitalized patients, we now know... That steroids such as dexamethasone is beneficial in hospitalized patients, both in the on the floor, not in the ICU, and in intensive care unit patients. We know that remdesivir is beneficial in hospitalized patients. It I feel de- like
0: that's something we always are hearing now. Yeah, remdesivir. and we didn't
1: have that till like May. And so, and it was on short supply and allocations. So,
0: was that a that a medication that was used in the past for other purposes, or is this a new medication? No, it had been it
1: been around for a while. They had used it in some Ebola cases. Okay. And so, it's an antiviral. It's well established.
0: But the volume. It's a a well
1: established drug without prior indications, Mm -hmm. and so it uh, received an emergency use authorization around in May. And so we were getting very small amounts of it. And so we had very strict criteria for what patients we you know, used it on. But the good news is um, the manufacturer can make plenty of remdesivir. And so we routinely use it in hospitalized patients with COVID illness.
0: So I wanna talk about the monoclonal antibody treatments. I feel like I've been kind of hearing a lot about this just at, at its core. What does that mean? What is that? So um, antibodies,
1: your antibodies are what you produce in response to a foreign substance or an antigen and so such as vaccination. Mm-hmm. So as a first line of defense our immune system when they see a new virus produces an antibody to try to you know get rid of that virus. And so the monoclonal antibodies and there're two on the market. One is made by Lilly and one is made by Regeneron. Um, and the the Regeneron product has two synthetic antibodies, and the Lilly drug is one. And so these monoclonals were made after the virus had been sequenced. So the good news about the transparency, transparency, and the sharing of all the information, is that as soon as this virus was sequenced back in say January, or February of last of last year. Mm-hmm. Um, it was publicly known. I mean, it was shared throughout the world. This is the sequence. So the pharmaceutical companies could then target drugs, target monoclonal antibodies, make vaccines, because they knew what, if you would, the recipe for this virus was. So the monoclonals, the idea for them is that they give us passive immunity to this specific coronavirus Mm -hmm. to try to inhibit it and make it so it's neutralized and you know causes less disease. So um, monoclonals had been enrolled, or the monoclonals had been studied in clinical trials um, throughout early on in this um, pandemic in the United States. And initially, what was found is that they weren't helpful in hospitalized patients, okay? In a subset of patients, in folks that were sick with moderate disease that hadn't required hospitalization, in that group, not a hundred percent, but in that small group, it decreased amounts of the the need for hospitalization as well as the need for subsequent emergency room um, visits. Okay. And so, the target population for the monoclonal antibodies are people that are sick with symptomatic COVID. Ideally, we'd like to start treating them within three days of their symptoms starting and clearly not after 10 because it just doesn't work by, by 10 days. And then the idea is to give them a jump start, if you would, mm-hmm. and give them like extra antibodies till their antibody response kicks in, which is usually anywhere from 7 to 14 to 21 days. So they have some antibodies to neutralize the virus so they don't progress to severe disease requiring hospitalization.
0: So for people listening who may, you know, unfortunately be diagnosed with COVID, how would they know if they would be a candidate for this treatment? Is that just something they should reach out to their primary care provider about?
1: I would suggest everybody become aware.
0: um, And there's, you know, a
1: a vast amount of information that's true on the internet. There's a vast amount of information that's not true on the internet. Mm -hmm. But under the EUA, um, they list the criteria. Okay. Um, Currently, our criteria, are age over 65, a BMI that's equal to or greater than 35, Mm -hmm. a person of any age that has diabetes, kidney disease, chronic lung conditions, immunosuppressive conditions, and those persons who are older than 55 with heart disease and hypertension. And um, in the EUA, there are more mm, patients or more criteria that are mentioned but the truth of the matter is we just don't have the amount of staffing and the availability to do all those groups. So if we've looked at the data, we've looked at our patient data, and we feel pretty comfortable that the target criteria that we have are the patients that have more severe disease and would benefit the most from these monoclonals. So
0: kind of like that at-risk patient population. Absolutely. would be, would be the candidates here. Um, it really is just incredible that in such a short time we have, we're even able to discuss all of these different treatments. I want to talk about kind of on another side of things, the supplements. Um, you know, when we started hearing about this early in, in March, April, and everyone's like, you need vitamin C, you need zinc, you need this, that. Where are we at on the supplements? I will say we're all over the board. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and um, there are... Are a lot of antidotal reports mm-hmm. that the deficiencies in vitamin D okay. may lend itself to more severe cases of COVID. There is many antidotal reports for and against, and so our recommendations. None of these are curative. None of these is a, none of these are silver bullets. And so while vitamin C and vitamin D are important for your general health, we don't want to have vitamin C and vitamin D deficiencies we don't wanna have excess vitamin D and vitamin C syndromes either. So um, while a lot of people are touting these things, in science, they haven't been proven to be beneficial or curative. So I think that's the
0: caution with making
1: these recommendations. That you
0: can't just take a zinc or a vitamin D supplement and say, okay, I'm protected from COVID. Correct. And is it at this point, of course, Obviously, the science is not all the way back in this, but are more people taking it preventatively or if they feel like they have COVID symptoms, you're seeing your patients start to turn to these methods? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of everything. And um,
1: I will tell you just experientially, um, everybody becomes a COVID expert when their friend or family member has one. And so uh, well,
0: WebMD, <laughs> yeah, WebMD. Well, this
1: is maybe even not as sophisticated as WebMD, which is a Facebook great source. MD. <laughs> I mean, Facebook MD, right. But WebMD is a good source of information, generally speaking, but Facebook MD, maybe not so much. So, um, you know, we it's sort of the everything in moderation kind of approach um, is my recommendations at this point.
0: Um, one of the, the interesting things they had said earlier too, and I don't know if they were this is again on the supplement kind of side of the conversation, but they talked about melatonin and then the the cytokine storm and your kind of like immune response when you're sick. Are we still kind of supporting that, you know, idea? Well, so
1: the cytokine storm is real. Um, this disease in its later stages are is is affected by interleukin release and cytokine release. And so um, there are some targeted therapies Mm -hmm. such as tocilizumab, um, which is another arthritis rheumatologic drug that is currently being studied more in depth about what its exact role is in the treatment of hospitalized patients. Um, The melatonin um, I think is useful for those that are having insomnia. We know that it does work for insomnia. Its utilization for cytokine storm, I think, remains to be proven.
0: And as we wrap up, I just, I did want to ask you, what does it mean to you as you know, a career-long infectious disease specialist who have been a part of being on the front lines of this pandemic, treating people, um, helping with the oxner's response? What does that mean to you, and what are your big takeaways? So, my big takeaways has been incredibly fulfilling. Every day
1: is a new adventure. Um, it's been Anxiety provoking at time, not being able to go to the textbook and look at the answer. Um, but it's also been rewarding to be able to take a whole variety of information from different sources, some credible, maybe not so much, preprint kind of scientific information that has not been peer reviewed, and distill it down and make it translatable to the organ mm-hmm. for the organization to use. I mean, our policies, our PPE you know, everything that we've done, we've tried to simplify it and make it understandable and be consistent and have a single source of truth. So that's been actually incredibly fulfilling.
0: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Kimler. I know, I think I speak for all of us when I say everyone here at Oxner and I think in the New Orleans community is so grateful for the work that you and your team has been doing. And we really appreciate you coming to talk to us today. Well, sure, thank you. It was great to talk with Dr. Kimberly today. It was really good to hear that we are making progress on treating our COVID-19 patients. And along with new vaccines and developments there, we may be able to eventually reduce the death rate or even stamp out this virus altogether. For the latest information on the coronavirus, visit oxner.org slash coronavirus. Thanks again for joining me on this episode. I am Alex Godin and I'll see you next time on Innovation Health.